Coming live from USA, Virginia, USA, our guest for tonight. Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts either through their industry insights and information or simply learning from them. And today we have Noah Healy, mathematician, data scientist, founder of CoreDisk. Welcome to the show, Noah. Welcome. Warm welcome to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for coming in. Noah, very simple question. You know, you are a mathematician. You are a recreational mathematician. So we will come down to, you know, about the real uh, topic of the discussion of how to make the markets easy and, and, and using your system, how to be best available for the common man for which for whom it was actually designed. But do tell us what exactly a recreational mathematician is all about. Well, the key to, to recreational math is that you're doing it for fun. So it's it's about finding a corner of mathematics that you personally find interesting and then delving into that and um, and solving problems or or simply exploring the space of that that mathematics. Uh, and it's it in historical terms, um, a lot of frivolous work has been done, but a shocking amount of frivolous work has turned out to be unbelievably valuable. Um, number theory, uh, which goes back for millennia, which is essentially just the study of the integers, um, or in some cases, just the positive integers and zero, the natural numbers, um, has been has been a fascination with humanity since the Bronze Age, uh, and advances in primality factoring and so on uh, that occurred in the 1700s and the 1800s uh, are central to some of the most important cryptographic algorithms that we use today. So essentially the reason that you can bank online um, or sign into a remote email server is because some recreational mathematicians were curious about how numbers work and look like at scales beyond any level that anyone could ever count to. Um, so it's a it's a fascinating thing to to get involved with if if it can hold your attention and uh it it has a lot of a lot of potential um for sort of deeply satisfying use of of your own mind um but even even aside from these sorts of of you know foundational discoveries it's something that that has fairly broad appeal. Um, people like to to work through puzzles and and solve things. Right. Many people right. do. Right. Um, the popularity of crossword, Sudoku, Rubik's cube, you know, and so on. Uh, and and even you know children's toys with like those little shapes that you can like push through holes and, and getting kids to kind of get the shapes and rotate them around the right way. Uh, 
humans humans find a deep satisfaction and i certainly you know find a deep satisfaction in finding things that that fit together perfectly that that just work that you know are structured in this way that's both complicated and simple at the same time and mathematics lets us approach these things not just in the physical realm but in the mental realm so so the the resources required are are ubiquitous like if you if you wake up in the morning you're already ready to to do everything that you need uh to work on these kinds of things so so the work for a recreational mathematician is a lot of serious work actually um it it certainly can be uh the 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 trick is whether or not you find that the work that you're doing is is your your form of play uh and that that's the dream in in many fields is to uh uh to find a way to to find the joy in in your toil right right and now now the actual serious part of what you are doing you know uh trying to change your change the world and trying to profit the common man the common person who is into the markets and you are trying to make a wholesome change through the knowledge that you have got through the technology that you understand and to not give the power to only some people but to those people in the market to for whom the market was actually designed for especially uh in the backdrop of the commodities market so tell us more about what you are doing what cordisk is about and uh what uh, you know coordinated discovery market your system design system is and how you how it can change the world actually if if it starts getting implemented widely but as of now let's talk about the commodities market and the technology that runs runs it actually okay so commodities markets are uh these very specialized forms of exchange that each one can only trade exactly one kind of thing um okay. so uh commodity needs to be completely specified in terms of quantity in terms of location in terms of quality uh and in terms of type so if if all of those things are determined then the sort of source and and destination don't matter at all um okay. because if you're buying everyone who's selling that commodity is selling exactly the same commodity so if you get if you get the one that fred's selling or the one that sam is selling it's the same thing doesn't matter um okay. and if you're selling it's the same deal everyone's buying with the same kind of cash so if you get five dollars from you know doug or get five dollars from jill it's all five dollars so um under those circumstances uh the good old supply and demand curves where these two lines you know one going up one going down meet in the middle there's this price where 
a lot of different people that are all making the same thing and a lot of different people that are all buying the same thing can come together and the buyers and sellers can be paired off uh, uh, for each good. Um, so the existing commodity market essentially just takes that model and, and is a place for that to happen. And what it does is it creates pairs of, of exchanges. Um, but because moving physical objects around is extremely expensive, what they do instead is they trade contracts to trade in the future. Right. But still paired exchanges. And so what they wind up doing is that they trade contracts that will never actually be delivered. So I could sell you a, a truckload of corn and then you could sell me a truckload of corn. And the difference in the price of those two things, um, we could settle in cash and then neither of us would ever even have to see a truckload of corn. Um, right. and the marketplace could allow us to do those two operations, uh, and many more. And so what happens within that structure is that a group of informed speculators basically forms that form the backbone of the market that do the majority of the trades. Uh, the issue that has arisen with computerization is that that increases their power in the market by a very large margin. So now, whereas say a generation ago, maybe they were 85, 90% of the marketplace was, was that group sort of trading with themselves and providing liquidity. Now it's more like 95, 98% of the marketplace is that. And while that doesn't sound like a very big shift, I mean, it's it's from, you know, nearly all to, to nearly all, um, the actual practical effect of, of those kinds of shifts is that there are now vastly more middlemen within the marketplace. And the reason that the marketplace can support that vastly increased number of middlemen is that the market itself has become more expensive um, for those end users. And at the at the beginning of the day, they were it's their marketplace. It's it's a place for them to find these prices to figure out what these prices are going to look like in the future so that they can plan their businesses accordingly. Um, you know, if you're a farmer, you can probably grow more than one kind of crop. And if you know where in general prices are heading, you can pick the crops that are going to be the most profitable to you. And that's, that, that's exactly what you want. That's, that would allow you and your family to, to be a lot better off. But it's also exactly what society wants, because the reason those prices are higher is because people want that stuff more. So, you know, um, if if you like croissants and everybody decides to grow oatmeal instead, you're, you, you know, not going to work out for you. You're not going to get what you want. Um, 
So, so that sort of arrangement of understanding that computer technology is tilting the markets away from its primary responsibility, which is providing the information that allows the economy to operate more effectively at a rate of cost that the economy can tolerate, um, okay. allowed me to come up with this thing that essentially extracts an actual separate role for those third-party players. So, so, so no, sorry to interrupt you. you. You mean that the power of forecasting that algorithms and computers have at the moment, uh, only a few people are misusing it for only their advantage and it is in, in contra contrary to exactly what the, uh, what, what a commodities market came up for. Well, I would say misusing is only true in the context of the existence of my market system. Within the okay. context of the existing market system, they're doing what they're supposed to do. Um, it, the, the entire concept of being that middleman liquidity provider is that you are supposed to know more about what's going on and you are supposed to profit from that knowledge, but your, your profit is essentially the cost of the marketplace. And, and what the market's doing overall is so beneficial that your profit is, is, is fine. You know, when you go to the doctor, you don't begrudge him getting paid to heal you. Right. You know, he's providing you a service that's valuable to you. You're providing monetary remuneration that's valuable to him. Um, that's that's fine. That's not a misuse of his study and knowledge of, of becoming a doctor. The same is broadly true in the financial industry. I mean, as long as they're not lying or manipulating things. Um the issue is that while these computers do allow them a better forecasting picture, what they also allow is them to improve their strategic operationalization of that information within the marketplace. And so they can, they can make more money collectively by doing that. And that is exactly where the problem comes in okay. um what what if if that tilt had not occurred then what would happen instead is that as they sort of learned better how to forecast the competition between them would become sharper and the market would become less expensive but markets as presently designed have no mechanism to cause that to happen. Um, and, and when they were getting put together in the first place centuries ago, there was no reason for that to ever be something that you would need to figure out how to solve. So, so we never did. Okay. So when, when did you actually discover this, uh, what is this sort of a thing happening where you thought that your knowledge could be uh, could be of use uh, to make this you know correction into the whole system at, at, at the at the moment, especially in the commodities market? It was actually after I figured out how my thing worked. So 
we were talking about recreational math. My my area of recreation is in computational math and information theory. So I was building out this model of a price discovery system for marketplace really just as a as a game uh, to play with myself to see whether or not I could design something that sort of worked as well as it could. In fact, I spent several weeks um, seeing if I could prove that there was a way using this approach to to sort of prove an optimum. Um, okay. and and I couldn't do it. And I also couldn't prove whether or not it could or couldn't be done. So it might be impossible to improve optimums. It's more likely I'm just not smart enough to figure out whether or not it's possible. Um, but once I sort of ran aground on on trying to figure out the, the best possible approach, um, I just started working through what the best approach I could think up using this this technology uh and then i started doing historical research um one of the things in math because lots and lots of smart people have been doing work for millennia is that it's pretty frequent to to trip over something that somebody else already thought of you know a thousand years ago or something um and it's that's not bad it's it's there's almost no better way to understand something than by discovering it, um, but it's 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 not great either. Um, so, in doing historical research on where markets came from, whether or not people had ever done this, I came to understand a lot about marketplaces and started thinking about them in the algorithmic terms that I now reflexively think about things in. Um, and doing that sort of did two things. First off, it demonstrated that my system was algorithmically superior to the markets that we've got by a, okay. an enormous margin. But then secondly, this other stuff where I could now see things like the the, the continuing bubbles that... Um, that characterize uh, the markets, not just sort of the 2008 crash or the the dot com boom, but also you know the the lost decades in Japan with with their experience. The world's been going through a lot of these sort of rapid boom bust cycles, um, right. and also been starting to experience flash crashing. <clears throat> We've yeah. seen a, a huge sweep towards financialization since the like late seventies, early eighties, uh, globally, and and computerization at the same time. And once you once you examine the algorithm that the marketplace uses, and start thinking through the game theoretic implications of computer technology and the algorithm, it becomes very clear that that algorithm isn't particularly viable with the technology that we've got. And so I now have this sort of dual, dual purpose thing. On the one hand, I've got this thing that makes what we have a great deal better. On the other hand, what we have has this really foundational problem that we need to fix 
and I have a solution to that. So, um, you know, I, 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 I mostly just sort of do my own thing, but that's, that's a pretty decent carrot and stick. And that, that gets me, you know, up off the couch and out in right. the world and, and doing this stuff. You see, you seem to have a, a big, uh, resolved and in solving the problems of this particular, you know, a lot of things that are going on in terms of a better use of technology that you, you have got, you see, uh, but is your problem, if not with the forecasting, that is it more about the price discovery? So my difficulty really only lies in the cost. Um, so again, the, the, sort of professional service people are the most used to dealing with our doctors. Um, Imagine, imagine two doctors that are right next to each other that are twins and had exactly the same training and, you know, exactly the same bedside manner. And one of them charges 10 times as much as the other one. And, and you get to pick which one do you want to, do you want to have serve you? Well, probably the cheaper one most of the time um you know if it's always going to be the same service uh and it's always going to be you know it's always going to look and feel more or less the same why spend more money uh and that that is the issue um the the marketplaces have done and continue to do a fairly reasonable job of predicting the future, something that's formally impossible. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, however, the cost of that service has been increasing in the face of increasing technology. And the work, the human labor and effort and attention that's gone into that service has also increased with increasing technology. and technology benefits us when those things decline or vanish not the other way around so when when people came up with like water-powered trip hammers to to help out forging blacksmiths didn't have to work physically harder as a result of having you know suddenly picking up 20 pound sledges and, and hammering on you know wrought iron for a day the like the water wheel can do that for you um we get you know he immediately gets better off because suddenly he can do a lot more productive work in a day but we generally get better off because suddenly there's a lot more iron around that we can make you know hinges and knives and and everything else that we want to make out of iron out of iron so that's that's the win. The win in, in technology is that we take something that's requiring human effort and attention and turn it into something that a machine can do for us. Uh, and so if technology is pouring into a space and we're increasing the amount of human energy and intention that, uh, that, that's being consumed, then that's a, that's a black hole. Um, there's a, a principle I like to say from history, from things like the fall of the Roman Empire and so on. Right. When the thing that you do to solve problems becomes the problem that you have, it's, it's just about over. Um, so 
if if throwing technology at a problem is making the problem harder and more complicated, then that, that that's a hole with no bottom, and and you have to come up with a, a different kind of solution. But but that's the way it technology is. You see, in, in elements uh, way, if I see it, it's like having an antivirus, and there is somebody who is pushing on the virus. <laughs> so at the same time, it's like the good and the bad. Uh, you know, complementing each other or fighting against each other. Well, yes, yes. So society, society isn't just an economy. Um, economics is a a very clean thing to think about uh, because it's it functions when it's voluntary. So at that at that level, it's very much about accord. But of course, discord is is a very key part of human action and behavior. Um, and, and my mathematical approach has significantly less to say about how to solve the discord problems. So, so I'm, I'm dealing with those at the, the human level of, you know, reaching out in conversation and, and teaching and learning and so on. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, your uh, technology, your product, you know, it can, change the market drastically, especially if you see, uh, start from the commodities market, you know, that it will, you know, it will all, uh, all trades at market clearing prices with radically lower total cost of transactions and the elimination of hedging needs. Now, if your technology is to be introduced in the present commodity markets, you know, at any place, how does it start working and why would people have a difficulty in adopting it you see on and another way uh, in if you i guess it's the same technology for which a patent is pending isn't it um yes yes and in fact uh just last week uh, i was granted a notice of acceptance so wow uh, hopefully in a couple of months or so i will be able to take that pending off the off off the the qualifier there and it will just be patented okay so my first part of the question and now you have said that you know you'll be taking it up so are there any takers for your technology as of now because why would be there uh, hesitancy in adopting that well one of the people i'm consulting with has pointed out that uh one of the the drawbacks is that it's harder to explain how it works than it is to explain how the existing market works uh and one of the aspects of that is that because there's a statistical component, uh, your your sort of startup requires about 50 people to voluntarily want to to be interested in the system at at the word go. Um, in theory, the existing mod well. In actual practice, the existing model scales down better than this does. So in theory, I could set up a brand new market in lithium, for example, with just an enormous stack of cash. I could just go out and start buying lithium from people and and buy enough of it that people that wanted to buy lithium themselves would start to see me as a source. And I could just... I could just sort of be a middleman until I had enough deal flow to develop the marketplace around that. 
and and go from there. In actual practice, if I were to try that, I am not an expert on the lithium market. I don't have an enormous stack of cash. I would almost immediately bankrupt myself if I were to do that. Um, but it's a thing that that has happened, and the markets that we have were, broadly speaking, developed exactly like that. Somebody with an enormous stack of cash and an awareness of wheat or corn or steel or whatever bought enough that they became the source and then and then built that out to a benchmark. Um, this system needs 50 people to understand at the bro in broad strokes how it works and what the roles are and why those roles work together. Uh, and that's that's a challenge that I'm addressing um, one person at a time and now through podcasting, uh, hopefully more than that, but that that awareness hump is is the chicken and egg problem for adoption right now. But you you have got a patent now, uh, and 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 the uh, if the government has uh, granted you that patent, it, it also sees that there is a uh, there is a use for it. And uh, yeah, the patent the patent is is a fairly big uh, a milestone because the patent office has essentially said that this is the things that I'm claiming that are sort of big claims that this is totally new that it's useful that those things are true that they've checked in and verified and said that yeah nobody's thought of this before yes it looks it looks like it could be used for something. Um, and, and it's an especially big thing because as a completely new price discovery model, nobody has, nobody has a price discovery model. Um, the closest thing imaginable would be the Black-Scholes formula, which is not a price discovery system, it's a pricing system. And while an impressive piece of mathematical work, it's based on an assumption about how markets work that isn't broadly accepted and is trivially empirically falsifiable. So everyone thinks that it's wrong and also it's easy to demonstrate that it's wrong. Um, and that didn't stop it from winning the Nobel Prize. Like, so so there's, there's really nothing in this space except for me. Uh, and, and with the patent that's certified by the U S government. So, uh, Noah, you, with all this knowledge, you know, with understanding of algorithms and everything rather than, you know, trying to change the system, you could have easily made billions within the same system with your knowledge. Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it because you don't want to do it because what you call you are an algorithmist with a conscience. Um, well, I think I think I I generally attribute it more to my laziness than than conscience uh, in in those cases. But mostly it's just disinterest. Uh, the the kinds of things that you have to the kinds of knowledge and, and abilities that you have to develop to say be a highly successful billionaire trader are are the kinds are 
very concrete and 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 static knowledge. Um, I I'm fascinated by learning. I'm fascinated by learning mathematics in particular because of its generality, and I really not particularly interested in or actually really all that good at at these kinds of particular things. Like I've always been a very bad speller. I'm sorry to say that I'm terrible with names. Um, like <laughs> people might as well introduce themselves to me as blah, because like my, I have a, I have a pretty good memory, but somehow names slip through, like they never even happened. Um, and so, so those, those are the sorts of things um, that, that, understanding of very specific currently existing transitory occurrences is what makes people money within that system and i don't i don't want to know about any of that stuff um i want to know about things that are real and permanent and and so on and i find i find value in that kind of learning and i've been fortunate enough to live in a time and a place where it's possible for me to sort of get paid enough to live uh, doing work that's that's in line with that and even supporting my hobby of doing work that's much much more in line with that uh, it would it would be fantastic for this work to turn into uh, uh, sort of a, a completely self-supporting system, but outside the United States, it's actually open source. So, okay, if it if it starts up sort of without me, it still starts up, and and because we have an economy based on something that's broken, getting an economy based on something that isn't broken is is the most important sort of outcome. Right, right. You see, you are a good mathematician, and it does not matter whether you remember names, you don't remember, you remember numbers. You see, you you seem to be a big fan of Alan Turing, you know. And I saw that movie uh, several months back, eight, eight, nine months back, The Imitation Game, in that he says that he does not know German. And, and then he says that, well, the, my machine also does not need to know German. It, it That's some, something like that, you know. Uh, yeah, well, you know, we're we're speaking English. Um, we're thinking in terms of concepts in our brains that are then translated into phrases, which are made out of words. Right. We could sit down and and write these things out using letters, um, but that's the that's sort of the order that we think about those things in with with our brains. But if 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 the computer is sending an email between us it's the letters are sort of the, the top end of, of that stack. So the computer's thinking about bits and it's organizing those bits in words, these collections of bits of specific size, and then transmitting them with a slightly larger size that allows it to have what are called parity bits that mean that when transmission errors occur, it can detect and re repair them. Um, and those those words have through Unicode a transition to letters, and and then a human being can look at those, or you know, 
Google or, or, or word or something, when you type in, it'll put little squiggles under it's like you, you misspelled yeah. that, or, you know, that doesn't look like right. The right grammar to me. Like, did, did you need an S on the end of that word? Um, and so the computer is, is looking at things from pure information and we're looking at things from pure information, but the kinds of information that we're dealing with on each end are, are very different but conceptually there's no difference at all it's all it's all information both ways um and that's to me the breakthrough that alan turing made that is most significant in yeah. connecting this sort of mathematical mechanical information to this imagination consciousness almost spiritual information um through the computer the computer was this device that could do sure anything a machine could do but it could also do any kind of math that you could think of and also anything you could imagine and and then you could prove things about imagination not very many things admittedly and mostly what you can prove is things that you can't prove um so so we have these limits around our imagination and mostly what they are is we don't know where the limits are <laughs> yeah uh, we don't know but but you see yeah yeah carry on carry on well carry on. no that's that's it really the that that turing's insight there i i count it as the most profound thing that humans have ever thought of and because it has to do with this sort of permanent ignorance around the limits of our own imaginations other than the the very knowledge of those limits um, i think it's arguable it's the most profound idea it's possible to have um because what 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 could be beyond sort of figuring out where the limits are that 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 nothing that there is nothing beyond um if you will so so that that's what i fell in love with and that's why i like playing in that that domain and and you want your product to protect ethics and morality when did that come in uh well so i was trained as an engineer and ethics training is a critical part of, of engineering. Um, and one of the things I think that's important about engineering ethical training is a sophistication that does not exist in other fields that I have encountered their ethics because, well, so the doctors, again, sort of first do no harm. That's great, you know, particularly you're trusting somebody in the most vulnerable time in your life. But for an engineer, sort of accidents, death are inevitable. Um, if you build a bridge, somebody can fall off of it. Um, right. But if you don't build a bridge, somebody can drown trying to ford the river. So it's not a question of not hurting anybody. It's a question of sort of building out a world of, of greatness and betterness uh and so this is this is critical so one of the things i've i've noticed is that 
you know, things are more important than people. And it's that's a horrifying statement. But the reason <laughs> things are more important than people is because virtually everyone who's alive's life is dependent on the things without the machines and tools and and homes and clothing and so on that we have developed and own and have um the vast majority of the nearly 8 billion people who are alive would die and so if you value human life and i certainly hope most people do um the only way to save it is through those tools and machines and like the things matter because because we people cannot keep ourselves alive by ourselves we need them right. um and so engineering ethics takes this on board that okay cars can run into you know into people uh, you know, somebody could get behind the wheel of a car drunk and plow into uh, a kindergarten crossing the street. That's a horrific event. Um, but cars also allow people to move about a ton of stuff at right. about a mile per minute, wherever they want that ton of stuff to go, um, whenever they wish for that to happen. And so this world that has motor vehicles is vastly wealthier than the world of four centuries ago that had no motor vehicles. Um, and, and as a result of that, there are many more children and many more kindergartens. So even if you just do things in, in sort of those sorts of bald human to human calculations, it's still a win. Um, and, and you have to sort of find your lines of, of where you can live with what the trade-offs are. Uh, but that training is actually what got me aware of computational mathematics in the first place. Because when I got out of college, I got a job working for a company that was a technology internet startup. I was not a huge fan of computers. I had been exposed on multiple occasions. I was pretty decent at algorithms and programming. Um, I wasn't that great at it because I have a bit of writer's block. I don't really write that much. And it wasn't fun and it wasn't interesting. Again, most of it was around like game development or, or computer graphics development, and I didn't care. So, not really interested in those subjects. Uh, but I get a job, it's, I'm doing it, you know, for pay and the ethical training kicks in, you know, you're accepting money for, for doing professional services. You should know what you're talking about. You should have some kind of idea what's going on. And so in addition to learning the language that they were using and, you know, the systems that they had, I also started a deep dive into the theory. And once I got to the math, which I'd never seen before, that was amazing. And that's when that's when I really started to, to you know, roll on those sorts of things. And so it's the it's the ethics that got me into the subject uh, in that sense. Right, right. Talking about your product itself, uh, Noah, uh, is your product only for the commodities market or, or it can be uh, used in 
the stock market it's all over the world so it's a price discovery mechanism for commodities um but things like stock and bond markets were actually developed out of markets that were originally developed for trading commodities um, okay. around the Mediterranean. So words like livestock, stockyard, and stock market okay, all have okay. the same root. Um, and, and so what's actually going on is that the Dutch figured out that you could take a company and split it up into even shares and then those shares would be commodities um and and or you could take a government loan and split it up into even shares and those shares would be commodities and then you could trade those things on an equities market or a bond market um that transition from you know shipping lots of like 10 cows or or a wagon load of, of hay or something to these more conceptual things like an agreement by the government to give you money in the future um had certain regulatory requirements of of putting them together to get them to function with the marketplaces that they had and i expect some sort of similar regulatory like you know, fudge would allow things like that to be traded within the kinds of markets that I'm proposing. But because that's more complicated, um, I'm trying to focus on existing commodity markets or underserved sort of proto commodities that could benefit from markets as the first step for adoption and validation. And, you know, it there's kind of plenty of time after five trillion dollars of the world's world's economy shifts to to a better system to go look at like things like the new york stock exchange and, and see if you can also upgrade them uh how did you see the crash of 2008 uh i'm sure you must have watched it closely uh, what was that how did it impact you um well i'm fortunate enough that it didn't have a great deal of of personal impact um it's it's of course has a, a lot of broader impact uh and and the the resulting decline in the economy wasn't wasn't that terrific um the 2008 crash to me is very much a story of technology allowing the market to lie to itself and then right. and then sort of coming face to face with reality that's why that's why i asked because will your technology see outside it's an open source so i'm sure if people adopt it will that will that save them for a from a repeat of such a contagion the world over again well so my approach the the existing markets are very much based on marginal analysis and marginal analysis is fantastic um, but one of the things that it's fairly weak against and this is well known is sort of the the whim of the moment 
um, bubbles and and panic crashes are are real things that do happen, and they're very difficult to deal with because exponential moves in a marketplace are actually normal. Um, a logistic swing. So if if you're at sort of a baseline and a a change occurs that that increases or decreases your levels. So this is this can be observed in the natural world. It's possible for a population to basically be stable year after year after year because it's sort of well fitted to that the, the niche that it's in. But then large-scale environmental changes can occur that cause its population to change a great deal. Um, and those changes start exponentially, but then they kind of go to linear and then they tail off to another exponential as they approach their new location. And sometimes there's there's multiple equilibria, but in single equ equilibria, you start exponentially, go linear, go kind of logarithmic, flatten out, and then you're at your kind of new baseline. Um, but in the marketplace, because of its marginal thing, a exponential elbow creates the possibility of a self-perpetuating bubble or crash um, because the market's heading up. If people decide to buy in based on the market heading up, uh, then they will create more upness if they buy in at a rate that's proportional to the rate of upness that's being seen then they will perpetuate that exponential curve and you will see a bubble and the same thing happens on the sell side if it starts going down and people start selling because it's going down and they start selling at a rate proportional to the rate at which it's going down they will again create an exponential curve and suddenly you'll have a massive crash. And so that is a weakness of the existing market algorithm that, that it is subject to bubbles and crashes. And what my system does is it exposes the forward price curve in a sort of more measured and, and useful fashion uh, where your benefit is not finding a counterparty that right now that you can exploit your benefit is finding an accurate forward price curve and so in that context a unrestrained exponential expansion or contraction is completely non-viable um and so if if those sorts of changes start looking like they might happen it becomes profitable and even trivial to sort of figure out where the curve's going to flatten out and negotiate that transition in a way that is economically valuable to the broader marketplace. Uh, and that, that would uh, effectively eliminate uh, those types of events. Now, what made that event particularly bad is that the market insiders were essentially deliberately engineering that circumstance because they understood that being too big to fail, they would simply get given free money once the game was finally up. Um, so, so they effectively deliberately produced a Ponzi scheme 
um, but without without actually doing the dirty work of of committing a crime, um, so that when the Ponzi scheme unraveled, uh, then then they would simply have to get the money anyway, uh, and that that's unconscionable. So uh, you said that around you need uh, you uh, this now that you have the patent. Uh, so where do you go from here? Are you looking for somebody to put in money into your uh, venture to for, for mass adoption? My primary approach is looking to license the technology to market players. Um, again, I'm not actually terrifically interested in, in sort of specifics. Um, and so one of the things the operator needs to understand if they're going to launch a marketplace in turmeric or wheat or okay. whatever is about how that thing works and who's using it and and where they are and, and what they care about uh and and there's an enormous amount of that far more than i could ever sort of pick up myself like i can't learn everything there is to know about every commodity on like i'm, I'm just one person right. um but people exist who are interested in those things that that have gained knowledge in not all of them but specific ones and so licensing to people in positions to launch marketplaces um is is sort of the best outcome for me uh and so that's my primary goal but it not necessarily people institutions have that uh governments uh might be interested in such things um obviously governments would be outside you know the united states uh and and then it's just open source so if if they want to pick it up and set up functioning markets in their country good on them uh i i wish them well and you know if if they want to if they want to then come to me and hire some expertise, then, then that's, that's good too. So um, there's really, I'm keeping my options as open as possible to, to just whatever, whatever moves first. Um, I want to be there to be able to, to help push it out the gate. Right. One interesting, last interesting question I have for you, uh, Noah, is that, Mathematicians are more about numbers. You seem to have a lot of interest in philosophy also. So how that? Well, so mathematicians do have, there's a lot of mathematics around numbers, but um, mathematics is a vast subject. And so an enormous number of mathematicians are highly interested in geometry. Um, there's uh, calculus and the entire theory of functions. And so there's an entire mathematics, not of numbers or of geometry, but of functions. And then there's set theory. Um, and then finally, as you point out, philosophy, the thing that fascinates me about computational mathematics is it's binding together of these ideas at the level of ideas with these sort of mechanical operations at the level of arithmetic. Um, and so I, I believe deeply that um, coming to grips with these ideas is 
a key thing for humanity to do in the nature of philosophy, economics, politics, war, everything, um, because the mechanism exists, it's real. Uh, and so having developed our institutions without the knowledge that this real mechanism exists, we should expect these institutions to have difficulties with the technologies that are based on this. And those technologies are the most rapidly adopted technologies in human history and some of the most ubiquitous devices in the world today. Um, you know, there's not, there's not one cell phone per person, but I think there's something like one cell phone for every three or four people. Um, that's, that's enormous, especially when you consider that the concept of a cell phone, particularly a smartphone, wouldn't be describable to most of the philosophers that have ever lived. Um, so, so then we have societies that are built on, you know, Christianity, Jainism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Judaism, Islam, whatever, uh, and and also the ideas of the Enlightenment and Isaac Newton and so on. Lots of wise, intelligent, moral teachers that were completely unaware <laughs> that smartphones could exist mm -hmm. um, and and who might you might not even have been able to explain to them like how many people who who own smartphones like understand what it is that they have access to um, and so i I see uh large-scale shifting necessitated by the circumstances that we're in. Um, and, and I hope that if we are aware of and consciously trying to make those shifts, things to places that are better, that we'll actually be able to achieve that. Um, and again, this, this might be my American optimism um, because America was founded around the beginning of the Industrial Revolution at a time yeah. when we now know the systems that had existed weren't viable because none of them exist anymore. Uh, and, and the founders of America sat down and on their second try came up with something that's fairly decent, although, you know, not without its many issues. Um, and so I, I hope that, that we can achieve something consonant with that in, in our similar parallel circumstances today. Um, right. On this note of optimism, no? Okay. Your name itself is a lot of optimism, you know? <laughs> And, and, and on this note of optimism, that's uh, a wrap on this edition of the KJ Masterclass. Thank you very much for your time and hope to see you again soon. Yes, thank you. <laughs>